So if you're visiting us this morning, uh, we're in the midst of a series on uh, the splendor of God's holiness. Two weeks ago, Pastor Sundar gave a powerful and insightful sermon on holy marriage. And he outlined for us the challenges that one faces in marriage and gave us ways to cultivate fruitfulness in our marriage by appropriating the twin blessings that we get when we go to the cross, forgiveness for our sins, and self-awareness, as well as Pastor Sundar challenged us to walk in the Holy Spirit, walk in the, with the help of the Holy Spirit, because we cannot, with our own strength, cultivate fruitfulness in our marriage. Today we are going to be looking at holy calling, God and work. So what is the connection between holy marriage and holy calling at work? Now, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they not only lost the beautiful fellowship that they had with God, but as there were two catastrophic repercussions that resulted from the fall. And one of the catastrophic repercussions is that there was pain in love and marriage. And Pastor Sundar talked about that. And the second repercussion is that there is pain in work. So both childbearing and childrearing, as well as farming and work, are involved pain and labor. So the two things that we are called to do, love and work, are excruciatingly painful. <laughs> and last week, Pastor Sundar talked about how do we work our Christian life in the light of these twin challenge of loving and working. And he said to us, he pointed us to the passage in Romans of giving our bodies as living sacrifice and equipping ourselves with smooth stones so that we can build a fruitful marriage and have a fruitful ministry at work. Now some of us may be wondering, so what's the big deal about work? Now I did some rough calculations. We spend about 100,000 hours working. That's 12 years of our lifetime. So no matter whether you are working right now, you are out of work, or you are in that delightful phase of retirement, grandparenting, and don't have to get up early in the morning and go to work, or you are too young to work and would be working in a few years, I trust that some of the principles that we are going to be looking at today about this holy calling and work will be applicable in our lives. Now, in the Walt Disney's classic movie on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you may remember the songs, song of the dwarfs as they marched off to work. They said, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. Now, this movie was made in 1937, just after the Great Depression, so not surprisingly, people were happy to go to work, any kind of work. But in the 21st century... The drudgery and the brute necessity of work is more evident than at any other time in history. The hi-ho, hi-ho, off to work we go refrain is replaced by the lament, I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. <laughs> I owe, I owe to the bank to pay for my vacation, to pay for my house, to pay for my car. Yes, the dimension of work after the fall has significantly changed. 
work existed before the fall. In the first chapter of Genesis, we read that God worked. In the second chapter of Genesis, God gave Adam the work to tend the garden. And even the best of jobs that we can think of, they have some maddening encroachment of thorns and thistles. Even for those of us who delight in our work, work in some cases has becoming has become an end in itself rather than a means to the end. Or work has become an identity for ours for many many as well. We are what we do. Our identity is so tied up in our work. In fact, when we introduce ourselves, we first talk about what we do rather than who we are. So what we are or what we do is what we are. So as I mentioned earlier, work existed before fall. And God delighted in his work. And God continues to delight in his work. And John, uh, Jesus said in John's gospel, the father works even today. And God's work is not only intricate and creative, so much so that any two things that he makes are not the same. He is not a cookie cutter type of God. Whether you look at two leaves of a towering maple leaf, or whether you look at two human beings, they are distinctly different. Even identical twins who share same DNA have some personality differences. God not only intrinsically and uniquely creates us, but he cultivates in us circumstances, life experiences, so that we will be equipped for the work that he has called us, whether it is the work of being a teacher, work of being a nurse, work of being a doctor, work of being an electrician, work of being a construction worker, or in that glorious phase of just uh, being in a retired phase, Or just as a student, God, or as a homemaker, God equips us through life circumstances so that we could be prepared for work. Now the Bible gives us some critical insights of the meaning of work. And it's wrapped up in the word vocation. Now vocation literally means calling. Up until the 16th century... The word vocation referred to the call by God to an individual, usually in the context of call to be a priest. In our everyday vocabulary, we use the the word vocation and occupation interchangeably. But the origin of the word vocation has a connotation of calling. So from a Christian perspective, we all have a vocation... To be as called people to be priests. And we execute this vocation through various occupations that God has given us. But sometimes we let the occupations get the better of us and overlook the great vocational call that God has given us to be called the priests of God. And sometimes, because of lack of better understanding, we build a distinction between sacred calling, those who are pastors and Christian workers, and secular calling. But as Os Guinness said, if you, even those that are in secular, call, secular calling, you take the secular work, Give it as a gift to God and he sanctifies that secular calling and and makes it sacred for you. So how do we effectively fulfill 
our, secu- uh, our vocational call through our occupation. And the concept of priesthood is not something that is an isolated incident in the Old Testament. We see that we, throughout the Bible, in Second uh, Peter we read that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that have been called to declare the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness into this wonderful light. So I, I hope I have set the context that we are all a called people, with a vocational call to be the priest of God, and we fulfill this vocational call through various occupations that God has given us. So how do we effectively fulfill our vocational call? Many of us are perhaps aware of the four C's that are used by employers while uh, selecting a potential employee. And these four C's are character, chemistry, competence, and culture. The two of these C's, culture and chemistry, we cannot do much about. You cannot change the culture of the company that you are working for. You cannot change the chemistry of the people that you are interacting with. But certainly character and competence are well within our means to change. So that we can fulfill the vocational call of being a priest in the place that God has called us to be. So character and competence are within our reach. Now Sir Arthur Doyle. Uh, noted physician and a prolific writer. We know him for, the, for his uh, literary work on uh, writing the detective novel Sherlock Holmes. He once played a practical joke on 12 of his closest friends. He sent a telegram to them, he said, uh, which said, All is discovered, flee at once. Within 24 hours, 12 of his friends, each one of them, fled the country. Obviously, they had something to hide. More recently, the Princeton Research Institute published a landmark survey that was conducted by Gallup Poll for a Wall Street Journal. And the researchers measured a wide range of moral and ethical behaviors in people, such as calling in sick when they are not sick, or cheating on income tax, or using company supplies for personal use. And the results were disappointing to say the least, but what the researchers found startling was that there was no significant difference between church and unchurched people in their ethics and values on job. In other words, churches seem to be doing, uh, having less and less impact on the moral, uh, impact on the moral fiber uh, on their people, at least as far as workplace ethics is concerned. And I've summarized that uh, research as follows. Mere biblical head knowledge, which does not affect the heart, will not translate into behavioral changes in the workplace or for that matter at home. So mere biblical head knowledge, which does not affect the heart, will not translate into behavioral changes in workplace. So what makes us to live with behavioral changes that are befitting those that are Christ followers and those that are living as disciples of Jesus Christ. So what are the two marks of true discipleship? Ben Stern is a pastor, a church planter, and an avid blogger from Indiana, and he made two candid uh, statements. The first one he said, discipleship is not just knowing more about the Bible, but it's actually the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, and I'm sure all of us agree with that. And to a certain extent, we understand it, we know it. The discipleship is all about becoming more and more like Jesus. But he went on to say, becoming more and more like Jesus has to do with character and competence. 
So what is the relationship between character and competence in enabling us to fulfill our vocational call? Perhaps this will, uh, this will, this will illustrate for us. So on the y-axis you, ha- you see the character uh, quality. At the top you have the high character and the low, and bottom you have low character. And the horizontal scale you have the skill sets. Low skill sets and high skill set. <coughs> so if you equip an individual with their character and ignore their skills, what you produce is good people with very limited impact on society. On the other hand, if an individual has low character and low skills, they become irrelevant people with practically no impact in, the, uh, in their sphere of influence. And if there are individuals who are high in skills, uh, sorry, high in uh, skills and low in character, they potentially become, can become dangerous people eventually or even being harmful to the, uh, to the uh, place where they are working and certainly in individuals' lives. However, when you have high character and high competence, you become influential people. You live a fruitful life and Jesus has called us to a, a fruitful life. So when Jesus calls his disciples... He wants us to be equipped with both competence and character. And this means that in developing our character, we deal with the idolatry, sin, and integrity issues in our lives. And in becoming competent, we develop job-related competencies and learn skills to deal with group dynamics, with conflict management, and communication skills as well. So both character and competency development are necessary for us to fulfill our vocational call as a priest of God through the occupation that God has given us. This morning I want to look at two individuals who used the, who used the, who recognized the, their, the call of God in their life as priests and used the character and competence to accomplish the plan through the occupation that God had put them in. Just want to pick up the story that uh, uh, Karen read earlier for us, and it steps uh, takes us back to 3,000 years ago in the country of Aram, just northeast of Israel, current-day Syria. And from this story, we look at three individuals. We look at a man called Naaman, who was a captain of the army of the king of Naaman, a uh, king of Syria, and he was a great man and a good leader. So he had position. He not only had position, but he had popularity and prestige. The Bible says he was a great man with his master and highly respected. He was a national hero. In spite of his position and popularity and prestige, he had a problem. The Bible says he was a leper. Leprosy at that time, as it is this time, is a a contagious disease which progressively gets worse. And one day this disease would alienate him from his family, from his position, from his popularity, and from his prestige. Moreover, at that time, leprosy was uh, often linked to a sinful lifestyle, so there was this additional stigma that Naaman would have to deal with. And it was just a matter of time that Naaman would have to leave his position, popularity, prestige, his family, his loved ones. And be embargoed into a life of isolation, life of shame, life of despair, and life of emptiness. And usher into this scene of an incredibly successful man 
with an incurable disease, a Hebrew slave girl. She most likely was brought in through the raids that uh, Naaman conducted uh, in the land of Israel. So this little girl, most likely she was a teenager. Her name, it's, her name is not mentioned in the Bible. She was in a situation that she did not uh, do anything to uh, earn. She was in a very sad situation where she was separated from her family and her friends. And, not, and she had every reason, perhaps, to hate Naaman. Because Naaman was most likely responsible for her plight. But instead of hating Naaman, instead of looking at Naaman when she found out that Naaman had leprosy, she had concern for Naaman. Not only did she have concern for Naaman, a genuine concern for Naaman, but this little girl had confidence in her God. She said to her mistress, if my master were to be with the prophet in Samaria, he would be healed of this ailment or this disease. She had total confidence in her God. Perhaps she saw Elisha doing some of the miracles. Perhaps she was a witness to Elisha raising a dead boy. Whatever the case may be, she translated her concern for Naaman and hinged it on the confidence that she had in God, in her God. And now she was courageously speaking to the, uh, the mistress of her house. Now, you just have to transpose yourself to uh, 3,000 years ago or perhaps put yourself in a situation uh, in other parts of the world that servants are very common. Uh, in fact, even some of the teenagers and children are used in that situation. In, in, in that context, it's very difficult for a servant to find out what's going on in the house, much less if it has to do with the problem that the master is having. Even if she should find out, she was taking a huge risk in talking about this leprous condition that her master, who happened to be the captain of the Syrian army, but she had the courage to speak. Dear brothers and sisters, she recognized her priestly responsibility and vocational call. And now she was able to speak out. The role that this uh, young woman played is an apt reminder for us that one's age or social standing does not stand in the way of us fulfilling our priestly responsibilities. All of us are working in some place from Monday to Friday. And God has given us that priestly responsibility. As long as we have concern for our, the people that we are working with, we have confidence in our God and courage to speak out graciously. God, use you, God will use that priestly voice that, we, that he has given us to draw people to himself. She's a great role model for teenagers. Now, whoever said God is irrelevant for teenagers? On one occasion, one of my students asked me what I was doing for the weekend, and I mentioned to her that I was going to a Christian retreat, and she looked at me with uh, puzzlement, amazement, said, well, how can educated people believe in uh, the, these type of God things? So we left the conversation. I was praying for her during, my, during the, uh, the Christmas break, and after the Christmas break, she came to see me, and her face was beaming. Evidently, uh, she picked up a decision magazine that is put out by Billy Graham, uh, Billy Graham Association uh, from her roommate's desk, and she was reading it, and by the time she finished it, she fell to her knees, accepted the Lord, and now she was a Christ follower. 
She became part of a Bible study that I was leading at that time. And a few months into the Bible study, she came to me after the Bible study, tears streaming down her eyes. She said, the situation at home is really very bad. My parents don't understand what has happened to me. My brother doesn't understand. And he is very upset of the commotion that has really happened in the house because uh, of the fact that I've become a Christ follower. My brother wants to leave home. Uh, and I said to her, you're a young Christian. You do not know. Well, you may not know much about Jesus, but Jesus is a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. And then and there in the hallway of the building, I prayed for her with tears streaming down, the, uh, down her cheeks. That evening at six o'clock, she phoned me, said, our brother wants to talk to me. I wasn't sure what he was going to talk to me about. He co- comes to me at nine o'clock in the evening, very upset, very angry, very argumentative, but very quickly his voice softened. And his uh, heart uh, began to be opened. Three hours later, he gave his life to Jesus. Now, dear brothers and sisters, God has called us to be priests in the place of our work. And we use our vocation, our occupation, to fulfill that plan. Just to pick up Naaman's story. Evidently, Naaman's wife had conveyed the little girl's uh, uh, comments to Naaman. He did what he was used to doing, getting a recommendation letter from the king of Syria, went to Israel, the king of Israel, who was in panic. How would I cleanse a leper? Elisha comes to his rescue. Naaman comes and stands before the humble dwelling of uh, uh, Elisha. Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. And you can just imagine a man who is used to power, position, popularity, prestige. He must have been so humiliated, already fuming, that the man of God did not come out. Adding insult to the injury, the man of God just sent a simple solution and said, you go and wash yourself seven times in River Jordan and you will be cleansed. For Naaman, it sounded like a very simple solution to a complex problem. Enraged, he was heading back to Syria. Now, dear brothers and sisters, when we talk about the cleansing power in the blood of Jesus, people foo-foo it. People want a complex solution to a complicated problem. But Jesus, but God has devised a simple solution by faith, accepting Jesus as our Savior, taking a plunge in the blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins, has the power not only to cleanse us from our sins, to provide forgiveness for us, but to give us a new beginning. Naaman was angry. He was livid. He was heading back to Syria. And usher in three of his, a few of his soldiers, a persuasive soldiers. And these soldiers were courteous. They called him my father. And they were very careful with their words. They said, if the king would have asked, if the prophet would have asked you to do something great, would you or not have done it? How much less for you to be just washing in river Jordan and be cleansed? And they were courageous. Can you imagine speaking to your boss and speaking that too to the captain of the army with a sword and, uh, at his side and spear in his hand and that too with anger fuming through his eyes. But they spoke courteously, chose their word carefully and courageously they spoke. A miracle of miracle. Somehow Naaman gets convinced. He washes in River Jordan and he's completely healed. Now, dear brothers and sisters, both in the case of the Hebrew slave girl as well as in uh, the case of these uh, soldiers, 
They gain proximity to Naaman through their competence. But they earn Naaman's respect through their character. And when they gain proximity to Naaman, they did not allow their character to be in any way marred. They did not allow their pursuit of competence or proximity to Naaman to get in the way of their character. Now, it's so often we see in the rat race that we are living in, in pursuit of proximity to the CEOs and people in power, we are willing to compromise our integrity and character. But both these individuals did not compromise their character, and no wonder God used them. Both used words that were seasoned with love, grace, and respect. Now, I was, uh, as I was preparing this sermon, it just occurred to me, there are two types of people that uh, we see in, in, in God's kingdom. There are prophets and priests. Prophets convey God's message to people. And priests speak on people's behalf to God. And God has given you and me the responsibility to speak to God on behalf of the people that we interact with. And what an incredible responsibility. You know, this slave girl would not have imagined that as she fulfilled her vocational call as a priest through the occupation as a servant girl, as a very humble servant, that God was going to use that priestly administration of those priestly responsibilities in changing the trajectory of the captain of the Syrian army's life. What an incredible blessing. You know, uh, we had a foretaste of uh, this blessing and joy just last week. About uh, 33 years ago, uh, I uh, had the privilege of leading a couple to the Lord, uh, 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 a young couple to the Lord when I was a graduate student. And that was my occupation, a graduate student. But I was fulfilling my priestly responsibility and I had... uh, miraculously, that's another story for another time, miraculously run into uh, this uh, couple. They were going through a very, very difficult time. They were boyfriend and girlfriend, and I had led both of them to the Lord. I discipled them for a couple of years when they were finishing up their undergraduate studies. And after that, they left to their home country. I lost touch with them. And just last week, we happened to be in their home country. And uh, I just uh, randomly picked up uh, some phone numbers that I had contacts and called them. And lo and behold, I connected with them. And it was such a joy. I was meeting with him after 32 years. And we had uh, communicated periodically by email and phone call, but not in the last 10, 15 years or so. So as we were having dinner with them on a couple of occasions last week, so I was asking them, how is life and what are you doing? And they come from a country where uh, Christianity is not the main country. In fact, it's uh, illegal for uh, the natives to be converted into Christianity. So I said, how has life been? And both of them come from a very wealthy family. And the husband said to me, in these 33 years, God has been very faithful. I've been praying for my mother, who has been a Buddhist all her life. And I said to Jesus, Jesus, if you can save my mother, I will sell my business and I will become a pastor. And he said, in 2009, my mother bowed her knees to Jesus. I sold my business, attended a Bible college, and today is a pastor of a Baptist church in that country. So I asked the wife, oh, so what are you doing? And she said, After I came back, my father was very upset with me. He said, I sent you to Canada to study computer science, not to become a Christian. I want you to pay back every penny that I spent spent for you 
for your education. So she worked and paid back every penny that the father had uh, uh, paid for her. And when she was still working in computer science, uh, uh, the president of a local, uh, president of the party uh, uh, of the country approached her and said, would you be willing to contest as a, uh, uh, as a, a politician for this particular state? And she said to the president of the party, I will pray about it and let you know. And this is in the context of a totally non-Christian environment. Three days later, she went to him. She said, I prayed about it. I'm willing to let my name stand. But I have three conditions for you. And I have her permission to share this. And these are the three conditions she, she put to them. That if you, want to, if you want me to contest, I want you to know that I'm a Christian and I will uphold Christian principles. I want you to know, I, since I'm a Christian, I will go to church on the Lord's Day, and if a party matter comes on, this, on Sunday, I will not attend the party uh, function. And the third thing she said, I want you to know, because I'm a Christian, when the party requires for all of the party members to toe the party line, and if it contradicts with my Christian convictions, I will stick to my Christian convictions rather than toe the party line. And the president of the party said, okay, you've got my uh, uh, approval for that. She contested, and she was a member of parla- provincial parliament for three terms for 15 years. So I said to her, how was it? must have been very difficult. She said it was very difficult. On one particular occasion, I did not tow the party line, and uh, I was reported to the prime minister. And for one month, every day, I was on the front page of the national newspaper. I said, it must have been very hard. She said, no, it was such a God-glorifying thing, because as people saw my face on the front page and on the television for one month, they said, we want politicians like this who can speak up their conscience. Little did we know, did I know at that time, as I was fulfilling my priestly responsibilities as a graduate student, through the occupation that he had given me, that God was going to transform people's lives. And here is a picture that we took just last week, the lady in the purple. Uh, And after she had finished her three terms as a politician, she has been appointed by the same party as a national leader for an NGO organization where she is providing retraining for teenagers who have dropped out. And they're doing an amazing work. You know, both of these examples that we have looked at, in the slave girl as well as in the soldiers, we see there's a connection between seeing and speaking. Now, our visual system is very powerful. Our visual system is able to process 36,000 pieces of information every minute. And Jesus saw, wherever he saw, he used that powerful images and impulses and information that was coming through his visual system to speak life. When, there was a le- when he saw a leper, when he saw a woman with a bent back, when he saw a woman with a man with a withered hand, when he saw a woman who had just lost her son, her only child, Jesus spoke. And Jesus has given us powerful visual system so that we could see. And he has given us, last week Pastor Sundar was talking about uh, instructed tongue. And it's not just for him, but for all of us who are priests of God. So that we could use the tongue that he has given us for his glory. Coming back to Naaman's story. Naaman got healed. And after being healed, he returned to the man of God. He and all his company, he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know 
that there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now my present for your, from your servant. Now, there's two things that we see in Naaman's life here. Naaman was healed, and therefore he was grateful. But there was a change of heart in Naaman's life. And if you read that passage, the change of heart preceded, change of heart and the declaration that the God of Israel was the only God, preceded the gift of gratitude that he was giving. Our God wants our heart before what we have to give him. And Naaman goes on to say, Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifices to any god but the Lord. So what could the significance of two mule loads of earth be? Possibly two significance. Possibly it would have been so easy for Naaman to settle down in Elisha and say, I want to just stay with you. I want to keep seeing these miracles. But Naaman realized that he had an occupation. And overarching that occupation, there was a vocation for him to be the priest of God in the land of Syria. And Naaman knew that he didn't have the ability. So he asked for two mule loads of soil so that he could erect an altar to Yahweh as a witness to the God of Israel in his own land. On this soil, in his own land, he could offer sacrifices as an evidence of his determination to forsake the gods of Syria. And it's also possible that whenever circumstances forced him for, to ceremonially participate along with the king of Syria, that he would probably be placing his knee on the soil that he had taken from the land of Israel. Dear brothers and sisters, God has given us a call to be royal priesthood. And we are a chosen people. Shall we fulfill the vocational call he has given us through the occupation that he has? Some of us might say, well, I don't have an occupation. But we can use even the time and the opportunity that God gives us. Perhaps not in the context of our work. When we go to a restaurant, when we are interacting and engaging with the server, when we are getting into a bus stop, when we are at the bus stop or get into a bus, God can give us opportunities to see the need and speak words of life. So how can we fulfill our vocation through our occupation without freaking out HR? It seems like a very big thing. Anything that we do these days as a Christ follower, we have to watch out. So how can we be Christ followers and fulfill our vocational call without freaking out our HR? We need to be genuine. People of faith are pure in their motives and dealing with others. They don't put on airs or sniff airs for hints of sinful behavior. They are marked by being genuine. And they are hopeful. And more than at any time, we need to breathe hope into a hopeless world. People of hope don't lie about the reality of the world. But they, are present, but they are pressing on towards a new day. And we have an opportunity in this hopeless world to talk about that new day. And inject positive direction in changing the course of their life. By being hopeful as Christ followers. We can be objective and righteous. People of the way speak impartiality into every situation. If there is deception, then we are the ones who need to speak out. 
If there is injustice, we are the ones who need to defend the innocent. And we need to be faithful. There's nothing worse than a person of faith showing up late to work and not being able to work uh, in a team. You know, you will be far more respected for our ethics before we are respected for our faith. And finally, our faith isn't always content-oriented. It's not about proof texts and apologetics. Yes, apologetics have their place, and God has equipped and gifted individuals to eloquently uh, provide answers to that, and we have seen the evidence of that even this week at, uh, in Toronto when John Lennox came. But most people come to Christ because someone loved them. And that's our highest calling in our workplace, to love. Now, we can, make, we can excuse anything from a Christ follower, but if we are not able to show love to the people that we work with. Vocation versus occupation. This is what says on the epitaph of one grocer, Here lies the body of Thomas Jones, born a man, died a grocer. He was a grocer, and he did everything that he possibly could do through the occupation, but perhaps forgot his vocational call to be a priest. And this is the time when the World Cup cricket is going on in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, it's probably, it's not a popular sport here, but I'm uh, spending time watching it. The only problem is it's being played in Australia, so the uh, game starts at 11.30 in the night. But nonetheless, in uh, late, late 19th century, uh, Charles Studd was a, a, a student at Cambridge University. And he was a captain of the cricket team of uh, Cambridge University. And he was so good that he was selected to play for England in 1883. He was born to wealth. His father was a very wealthy man. And there came a revelation at the peak of his career that he realized that all the popularity that he has as a sportsman, all the money that he makes will have an end. So this is what he said towards the end of his life. I know that cricket would not last and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last. But it was worthwhile living for the world to come. Dear brothers and sisters, my challenge for you is, are we willing to accept our vocational call as priests and use the occupation that God has given us to live as his priests? And we have an opportunity, even this week, to make that significant difference, picking up these flyers, passing them on to our colleagues, inviting them so that they can know the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus, why we are celebrating Easter and why Good Friday means so much to us and what a blessing it would be if we could really make use of these opportunities to live out our priestly call. May God bless May you go with the assurance that you are deeply loved by the Father. He has chosen you and anointed you as his royal priesthood. And may he go before you, make every crooked path straight, and weave into the tapestry of your week, so that you will see the fulfillment of your vocational call, even this week. Go in Jesus' name.